This is Pastor Aaron at Oasis Baptist Church, and thank you for checking us out online. I pray that this message is an encouragement to you. Well, good evening, everyone. Everyone doing okay? I'm looking here, there's a song here, Why Should I Feel Discouraged? <laughs> there is the first thing I'm reading as I'm looking on the, on the pulpit. I will start, thank you, uh, Pastor Aaron, for letting me come along here tonight. I was a little bit unsure as to what was happening. I was sort of... Uh, been told you've got to go here, you've got to do this, and I said, okay, wherever you send me, I will go. And uh, so I've ended up here tonight, and I uh, thank you for coming out. I, I've been uh, traveling uh, a couple of weeks, or about a week, and now I've got another week in Texas, and then back home. And specifically, what I've been speaking about on this trip has been about the issue of mental illness, which is a topic that you don't hear much about in churches. Uh, anyone ever heard anyone talk about mental illness in church? Maybe once, no, maybe, not really sure. I know growing up, uh, I didn't, I got, um, you know, I was born in Australia, I'm a seventh generation Australian, so my great, 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 great grandfather uh, came out to Australia on a convict ship, so I got a criminal history in my background. Uh, he turned up in Australia for stealing silk or something in England, and they said, you know what, you're gone, mate, down under, and so he's uh, ended up down in Australia, and so he became the the forefathers of where we came from. But I, I know growing up in Australia, uh, Christianity is not a huge thing. Uh, you know, it was not a massive big issue in Australia. They, they say on a Sunday, oh, if you're lucky, you might have 3% of Australians going to a church somewhere, of every type of church you could think of. So it's not a really big, big thing. Uh, you know, I, I come to this country here and you see people praying over their food in a restaurant. You'd never see that. In fact, uh, if you handed a gospel tract to someone and invited them to church and asked them, has anyone ever invited you to church? You'll find most people will say never. It's ne never happened. It's a very different sort of a country, very laid-back country. Uh, the key phrase in Australia is, uh, she'll be right, mate. She'll be right. Don't worry about it. Everything's good. You know, chill out or whatever you might say here. I'm not sure what you say over here. But that's uh, pretty much Australia. And I remember... When I was uh, 14 years of age, my parents split up when I was uh, much younger. So I sort of went from pillar to post, going back and forth between different places and spent a lot of time at my mate's house and uh, really just lived there. And I used to get up in the morning and I'd see his mum would be in the, in the living room and I didn't know what she was doing, and, but she'd be reading something and she'd always be very quiet. I didn't know what she was doing. What she was doing was reading the Bible, but I didn't know that. And I remember looking at it and thinking, man, she's such a beautiful lady. She was just, uh, she had a tremendous attitude about life. And I just remember she was so influential. And then as I stayed there more often, she would start to talk to me about the Lord. And I would think, yeah, I'm, I'm interested, but I don't know much about it. Well, then her, her two boys, she'd send them off to a youth group. And so I'd go to this youth group and cause they said, I said, what happens at a youth group? And they said, well, you go to a youth group, we play games and there's girls. And I said, I'm in, we're going. <laughs> And so I remember as a teenager, I went along to the youth group and, um, and they would do all these fun stuff and things. And there was, I don't know, maybe 20 or 30 kids there, I suppose, young people. And I was, I'd sit there and they'd bow their heads to pray. So I'd just bow my head. I just want to, didn't want to sort of stand out. And then one uh, Friday night, they said, listen, we're not going to youth group tonight. We're going to go to a, a crusade. At, the, at Ramwick Racecourse. And I knew about the racecourse because my uh, grandfather used to take me there for the races all the time and I'd tag along with him. And, 
And I said, yeah, I'll, what, what is it? And they said, we're going on a bus and we're going to go into the city and go to this crusade. And I said, all right, okay, I'll come along. And so I'd had nothing else to do. So I tagged along. Well, it was a Billy Graham crusade. I didn't know, never heard of him in my life. And so I remember going to this and there was a huge amount of people. And I sat up in the grandstand in the, in the race course and heard this uh, person preach. And for the first time in my life, I'd he heard something about, about Jesus and why he came and all the rest of the gospel concept. And, and I, I sat there thinking, when they gave the invitation to come forward and accept Christ as Saviour, I remember I'm 14 years old. And I'm sitting in these chair, in this grandstand, sort of thinking, I've got to go. No, I can't. All these people think I'm one of them. I can't go. And I remember I felt like I was going like this. I've got to go. No, I can't. I've got to go. But I was obviously not. That was happening on the inside. Well, I just shot out of my seat and went forward and trusted Christ as my saviour. And, and uh, then I went home the next day. I stayed at my mate's place. Then I went home in the morning and uh, saw my mum. And I said, mum, something happened last night. And she thought I got in trouble, you know. And she said, oh, what did you do? And I said, no, no, something good happened. And I said, she said, what happened? And I said, I got born again. And she just looked at me. And she said, what? Where, where did you go? And I said, and I showed her the little pamphlet I got. And I said, I went to this crusade with Billy, Billy Graham or someone. And she just started to cry. Because I'm 14. Billy Graham, that was in 1979. 1969, Billy Graham came to Australia. I was four. I don't remember any of that. My mum and dad were going through all their marriage bust up. My mum went to the 1969 crusade. My mum got saved in the 1969 crusade. And then she told me what had taken place and her life had been a mess since the divorce and all sorts of things from there. And, and she said, Robert, where, do you, where does your friend go to church? And I said, I don't know. I don't know where they go to church. She said, well, find out because we're going tomorrow. Well, it turned out to be a, a little Baptist church in Borkham Hills. And uh, so I said, well, that's where they go. So she said, well, that's where we're going. We're going to church tomorrow. And so that began my journey in Christianity along that path. And, and uh, I end up, my whole life, I was going to be a lawyer. And so I did. I pursued law, went to law school, worked in law firms until God called me to preach. And uh, I sort of switched me from man's law to God's law. And I've just continued to do that for the last, I don't know, 20 odd, 25, 30 years almost now working in ministry and doing legal work on the side and other things and for the last 22, 22 years I've been full-time in the pastorate there where I'm at the church and uh, in Rockhampton, Australia, beef capital of Australia, really good beef. I'm not sure where that's where you get your outback steaks from or not but uh, that's, uh, that's a, it's a decent place. So that's, that's my story. My wife and I have been married uh, coming up to 84 we got married 85 no, 84 we got married terrible when you forget those things isn't it and so we're coming up to our 35th wedding anniversary uh, we got married when we were 12 years of age no we didn't they've got a bit, <laughs> bit older we got five kids uh nine grandchildren and loving life and just thanking god for what he's given us an opportunity to do but the reason i'm talking on mental illness is because my wife's lived with a mental illness for the last around 26 27 years uh it wasn't like that when we got married and it's a bit strange, you know, you, you marry someone and you marry them for who they are. And we all change as we grow, you know, that all happens. Physically, we change. Everything happens. And, uh, but you don't expect a person to completely change their whole personality and character. And so after about seven or eight years of marriage, things completely changed. And so it's been an interesting journey for us over the last 26 years or so. So that's what I want to talk to you a little bit about tonight. 
and uh, work through a couple of things here. Uh, what I want to speak on is this idea of an unquiet mind. And I don't know if you've ever gone to sleep at night time and um, you've tried to lay, you go to sleep, you're lying in bed, and as you lie there, you know, all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse, and you, but you're, you're, your mind's just racing. Or you're in a state where your thoughts are just going, and they're not good thoughts. They're you know, anxious thoughts or worrisome thoughts or negative thoughts, and you're just in that, what's, what I call the unquiet mind state. Uh, David wrote about it in the Psalms. Let's see if we can get this click and work. Here it goes. Well, we can't get it working now. Anyway, it was working. <laughs> Not sure what happened there. Might be able to switch it back on. There it goes. Just switched over now. Must have been you walking towards the back. That's what it was. It said, this guy's walking towards me. I'm getting started now. <laughs> so here is what David said. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why are you discouraged? Why are you like in having this blue moment? And he's talking to his own soul. I didn't realize you could talk to your soul until I'm reading these passages and he's communicating to himself and he said why art thou disquieted within me why is there something in me that's noisy why is there something in me that's that's restless and then he gives this this sort of statement of where he's going to how he's going to get out of this and he says hope thou in God speaking to himself I've got to put my hope back in God and he says I realize I'm not in this state yet he said, but I will be, for I shall yet praise him. I realize I'm going to come out of this. I'm going to praise him who is the health of my countenance. And I just want to remember, remind you who he is, and he's my God. And so he had a bit more of a passion by the time he gets to the end of the verse from where he was at the beginning. But he spoke about this idea of an, a noisy unrest within him, in his soul. Now, I understand, and you would too, that we are a body, we're a soul, we're a spirit, we're a tripart being. And in our soul, people may have some thought it was your soul is sort of made up of your mind, your emotions, your will, it's, it's who you are, your volitional part of your life. And if you think about your mind, I think all of us would say we really want to have a healthy mind, wouldn't you? Most of us would say that. We want to be healthy in our mind. We want to have good mind health, or you may call it mental health. You want to have good mental health. And the difficulty is when, if you have bad physical health, Generally, people can see that or you can validate that with a test or you, know, you break an arm, people will see it in a cast. Uh, if, you, if you have a, uh, something wrong with your heart, there can be a cardiogram and it can show that. Or if you have diabetes, you can have you know, blood tests and, and different tests to show you that you have these things. You have cancer, there are tests that can reveal it. But with mental health, there is often no test. In fact, if you want to be diagnosed with a mental illness, it's a symptomatic diagnosis, not a scientific diagnosis. So whether you have bipolar disorder like my wife has, or whether you have schizophrenia, whether you have uh, PTSD, some anxiety disorder, uh, borderline personality disorder, I'm just dealing with a lady at the moment who's just been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. Uh, whatever it is, you, it's a symptomatic diagnosis. In other words, over people watching the symptoms and thousands and thousands and thousands of people having the exact same symptoms, they've then said, those symptoms represent this mental illness. And so therefore, without any scientific basis, people sometimes dismiss it. They say, well, that's just all in your head. Well, it is. <laughs> that's where the problem is. Uh, that, that's what's going on. And people think about this. But here's what we do know. There's a lot of stuff we don't know about mental illness. 
But here's what we do know about mental illness. One in five adults will experience mental illness. One in five. So you look at in a group here, one in five will experience mental illness. Out of, out of this, you find in, in your country, and it's the same in ours, very similar statistics, one in 25 people will suffer a, a serious mental illness and will live with that serious mental illness. And that's a very, very you know, staggering statistic when you start to think about things. But with that, any mental illness comes a dreaded aspect called stigma. Uh, we know in our lives that you mention to someone that you have mental illness and there's this like a... Ooh. See, what people don't understand, they fear. And when someone doesn't understand something, they get a bit apprehensive. Well, I'm a bit nervous about this. Like, you've got a mental illness, you're crazy, you're a lunatic, what's wrong with you? They don't know what it is. And so they, you sort of stand back a bit and a bit cautious about people. Uh, it happens when people apply for a job. If they mention that they have a mental illness, and automatically there's a stigma upon that person. But if they said, oh, I've got diabetes, oh, no worries, here's the job, mate, go for it. You know, so there's this stigma that attached to that. Prince Harry recently spoke on the subject, and obviously, you know, Prince Harry now with Megan, his uh, Duchess of Sus Sussex, and little baby Archie, and all those sorts of things that have taken place. So you guys have a vested interest in the royalty now, with an American being part of the royal family. But he said, he said this, mental health is a sensitive subject amongst a lot of people, but it doesn't need to be. And he says, we need to talk about it more. We need to get rid of the stigma. Because people are stigmatized with it. And where it becomes even more stigmatized is in Christianity. And I know, my, this is my wife, we were at Mental Health Week and, and trying to get people to talk about the elephant in the room. In Christianity, many times people don't want to discuss the issue of mental illness because they're, somehow they think someone who has a mental illness, oh, 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 demons, demonize them, <laughs> there's something wrong. Or, no, there couldn't be. You just don't have faith, that's your problem. You're just not trusting God, that's all it is. You need to pray more. And they'll just deny its existence and work through because how can a Christian have a mental illness? Seriously, how could a Christian be depressed? Don't you trust in God? God? God's the victorious God. How come you're not victorious? And all these things happen and, and a Christian who has mental illness feels obligated to make God look good. So they sort of live in this, I can't tell anybody, I can't speak about this and I've got to suffer silently through this because if I say something, well, I'm going to make my church look bad or Christianity look bad or, or, or what it is and I don't want to do that and they live with this stigma. I know that for a fact as we've lived with it in our lives and as I've ever spoken about it, the first time, I'm, I'm going to say probably maybe, I don't know, 15 years ago, I mentioned it in a sermon I was preaching in this church and I had some people come up to me afterwards and said, man, you're, you're very brave, Pastor Bax. And I said, what, what, what's, what's the matter? <laughs> they said, you, you told everybody, and this was at a, at a leadership conference full of pastors and a whole bunch of people, they said, you told everybody that your wife has got a mental illness. Aren't you embarrassed? Aren't you worried what people are going to think about you now? And that was the first time I'd ever sort of been confronted with this in a church world. And then I started to have others at that same place would come up to me and say, would whisper to me, oh, my, I think my brother's got this, I, I think. And they would, like they were embarrassed to speak about it. So we've decided uh, we need to speak on this stuff. We need to put it out. Now, here is a statistic. I've done a little bit of a research before I came to the state of Nevada. This was a shocking statistic that I found. Nevada is ranked the worst state for mental illness by the Mental Health America. 
That's based upon the prevalence of mental illness in your state and the access to care for mental illness. So out of, they've, they've got 51 states there because they've included the District of Columbia. I understand that's Washington or whatever that is. Uh, so you're, you're ranked number 51. And when I, I started to think, I'm thinking Alaska's going to be the last one, you know, up in the cold country and people get depressed or whatever it is. Nevada. So, I mean, this is a prevalent, prevalent issue in society and, and in your society as well. And you say, well, why is it so important? Because if one in five people are living with a mental illness or have a mental illness issue, there's also one in five people who are living with depression. And out of that, the statistics will take one of, one of four are women and one of six are men. So there's a higher prevalence among women than there are of men with depression. And then if you take that statistic out of them, 15% of them are living with a serious depression, which often can go to suicidal thoughts or even suicide action. You study your statistics in, in the country here as to the leading cause of death in your country, and here is the leading cause of death in your country. Unintentional injury is that blue one. The green one is suicide. There are more suicides between the ages of 15 to 34 to 35. There are more suicides in your country than homicides. That, and, and I look at these statistics and I think, that doesn't need to be. I mean, this, surely there is answers that we can help people and if the church becomes a greater voice on mental illness, there are people who are dying without Christ. There are people who are going, because 90% of the people who commit suicide are attributed to a mental illness issue. I mean, we're dealing with some severe issues that there is hope. There is an opportunity to speak on these things. And Jesus is intensely interested in people's lives. See, sometimes we think the Lord was just going around preaching. But here's what the Bible tells us he was doing. He was teaching, educating people. Teaching in the synagogues is the rabbinical fashion would sit down and would teach various aspects of, of, of life, of law, of different things. But then he would go outside the synagogues and he'd be preaching the gospel, evangelizing. But then he also did another thing, he'd be going around healing. So if we think about this, Jesus' ministry, a third of it was health care. He was taking care of people's physical needs. Now he was healing, uh, have a look at this, he was healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. I would suggest that that would include mental illness. If it's all manner and all of disease and sickness, it would include those things from there. Now, our story began in 1993. Uh, you can see there, uh, that's my wife and I when we were much younger, my wife and I were much older, I'm twice the man she married, uh, and um, things have changed a little. But it began there. I was, I was doing legal work uh, and then I was also helping in the church, doing ministry work and I came home from work. We had three children at that point in time and I came home and I, I walked into the house and there was something changed on Jenny. Jenny's face just seemed to have, her countenance had changed and I just looked at her and she was just in this look of, of anguish and we'd sort of been noticing a few things but it's just something snapped. And she just looked at me and then the wall, say that that was a wall there, she just looked at me and she turned and in utter frustration, she was, she's a petite woman, she ran to the wall and just threw herself into the wall, put a massive big hole in the wall, slumped to the ground and just was sobbing. And we had no, I thought, what on earth is going on? What's happened here? We didn't know. But we had an un unwelcomed visitor had entered our home and that visitor was called bipolar. We didn't know what it was. We, we didn't have a clue what was taking place and there was all sorts of questions and, 
and then she would hit these massive, massive depression lows to where she would be uh, lose her appetite. She went down to about 80 pounds and she suffered brain fog and suicidal thoughts and uh, it just plagued her. She was in deep, deep pit. We go, we go to doctors. I remember the first doctor we went to uh, really didn't have a clue what was going on. And he said, look, I, I think you just need to take your wife to the psychiatric unit, drop her off at the psychiatric unit and just leave her there. Well, that wasn't going to be an option for us. We said, we're going to search and pray and ask God to help us through this. There must be some answers. Why is she like this? And of course, we had well-meaning people come up with all their reasons why this was happening in her life, just as people do. If you're in churches, you'll often have a lot of these pseudo-doctors who know everything about what's wrong with you, and uh, they would come up, or you'd have others who would tell you, whatever you do, don't go to doctorsadangerous.com. You better watch out for that. I mean, you watch out for all these things. And we'd have everyone, well-meaning, trying to say, this is what's wrong with her, this is what's wrong with her. And none of them had a clue. We didn't have a clue. And then she would move on to, not out of depression, she would move to massive highs. I mean, ecstatic days, conquer the world, not sleep for two or three days, jump into projects and be brilliant. And she would do these. Then she would uh, do some unusual things. And our kids have often laughed about it. We wrote about it in one of our books about some of the things. There are quite some funny things that she would do. I mean, my son's birthday is in January. Well, my wife decided to make a birthday cake for him in May. And just for some unknown reason, she's feeling great and high, so she makes a beautiful big 16th birthday cake and takes it to school, interrupts the class singing happy birthday. Well, you know, he's sort of thinking, oh my God, what's going on here? This is terrible, what's happening here? And another time she was there, my mother was there, and uh, she decides, she hadn't slept for two days, and she wakes up and she, well, she didn't wake up, she was already up, she makes another cake for my mum's birthday. But here is the problem, it's two o'clock in the morning and it's a school day and she wakes everyone up in the house, I'm the one taking the photo, you can see the wonderful expression on our children's faces, how excited they were to be woken up at two in the morning to sing happy birthday to grandma and she's happy about all their stuff and then next day, boom, she's down. And this was the cycle of our life and we would move back and forth between these things and we think, what on earth has taken place? And we didn't understand that bipolar disorder had entered our home. Bipolar was otherwise known as manic depression because you would have manic moments and way down depression moments and the depression in that mood disorder was often very, very low from there. And we, Jenny would wake up and she, would, she wouldn't wake up in the morning and think, you know what, I think I might have a mania moment right now. She wouldn't do that. Nor would she wake up and say, you know what, I think I'll just go into depression today. It wasn't like that. In fact, we often say it's not sure if, whether she wakes up in the morning as Eeyore or whether she wakes up as Tigger. We're just not sure what's going to happen. And so we've learned just to join the journey and follow along from there. And in doing so, we decided that maybe what we should do is start to write some things and see if we can help some people. And so we wrote two books, or one book in particular we started to write, and it took us 10 years to write it. And uh, it was the book called Poles Apart. And it was a book called Dealing with uh, a Christian Couple Gives Bipolar a Voice because many times people don't speak about this and we wrote on several things dealing with uh, on the issue of mental illness, what does the Bible say about mental illness, what does the Bible say about taking medicine, how do you deal with these things, a whole range of different topics and then spoke about our story and we have people read it and say, that's me, I oh, know that's, that's this and they read it and they see it and then we gave chapters of absolute hope to people 
of what the scriptures speak about hope in all areas of Christian living. And then the, the other book we put out was a book dealing on what to do when panic attacks, because my wife would suffer panic attacks. Depression and anxiety are often linked. And so what, how does the Bible deal with anxiety issues as we work through it? We're currently working on a book right now just called Battling and, and uh, Beating the Blues, which is specifically just on depression and the biblical advice to overcoming depression. So what I thought I would do, I have a couple of these books out there for sale if you're interested in those, but this is the area I want to talk about here on this issue of depression, because it is, seems to be more prominent in, in people's lives than the mania issues, it's the depressive issues and depression is more than just a discouragement everyone gets discouraged don't we we all get discouraged but not everyone gets depressed depression is more of an intense emotional state of sadness that will include discouragement but it will include a sense of apathy it will include include a sense of dejection over a prolonged period of time now there is a word that i often associate with uh, uh, with depression and that's the word hopelessness because when you have depression, there is a sense of this is never going to stop. There's a sense, there is a sense of hopelessness. I feel hopeless here. And it's difficult when you feel hopeless to have faith. Because we know the scripture said faith is the substance of things hoped for. And so when a person has lost their hope and they're hopeless, and you say, well, just trust God, that's very, very difficult very difficult for them to do that so we have to look at ways to build hope into a person's life and speak about that that's why the psalmist said hope thou in God put our hope not not trust in God hope in God get our hope back to the person it is some have said well is depression just simply a western society thing is it a 21st century issue it's well beyond that it crosses gender race culture time generations and you'll find it King, King Saul was depressed, there was a whole lot of issues. In the book on depression we're writing, we're focusing specifically on issues of women in depression, because there's more women in society have depression than men. So we're looking at the women in the Bible that went through depressive issues and, and how they were dealt with and what happened in their life. World figures over history, political figures, leaders, Winston Churchill, many others suffered from severe bouts of depression. As comedians, actresses, actors, Robin Williams sadly took his own life because of a consequence of his mental illness as well. These are real things and we discovered that depression really is a silent killer. Depression is there, my wife describes it as you, you wake up in the morning, you can't get away from it, you're at lunch with friends and it's just this nagging feeling, you take the kids to sport and you're in this constant state of despair, it's like a morbid spirit of darkness there's a, a, a quenching in her life and she said it like it's, she said it's like it washes away your personality and you're numb and you feel like there's just tugging happening in your mind because there is an unquiet mind. There's a struggle taking place from there. The book of Proverbs says it this way, heaviness, and I love this expression, heaviness in the heart, heaviness in the heart, maketh it stoop. You ever carried something and you've sort of weighed over because it's so heavy when I go to Papua New Guinea and minister up in the in the with the pastors and churches in Papua New Guinea they don't have a word for burden like if you feel really burdened and that their word is you've given me a heavy that's what they say give them heavy and that's how they express in pidgin English and I thought what is a great it's a great descriptive word because that's what happens you feel so weighed down that you're stooping but the answer is also in that verse of scripture 
but a what? A good word. A good word maketh it glad. And we've hoped that God would use what we're doing to be a good word, to help people in the circumstances of life, to say there is a good word. God's got His Word. We can help people through encouragement and working through different issues. Now, here are some things we have found out about depression, specifically, also bipolar. I said to you earlier, there is no scientific test, but there is scientific tests that are done, not to diagnose, but also just to see there, there is something definitely going on. They're called PET scans. In other words, they do scans of your brain. And here is an example of a PET scan of a depressed brain, and when a person is in a non-depressed state. And you can look at the blood flow working through a person's brain there on the left, it's hardly moving through the cortexes. They get, if you would, uh, the neurotransmitters get literally blocked. It's like there is a, they're getting squeezed out and they're just not flowing properly. In a non-depressed brain, your blood flow is working, is working fine. So they've recognised there is actually something physically happening as well to a person's body. Because you are body, soul and spirit. Remember this as well, your brain is not your mind. Your brain is an organ. Your mind is part of your soul. When you talk to a psychotherapist or a psychiatrist or a, or a uh, um, psychologist, it uh, depends on where their worldview is. If they have a biblical worldview, they will distinguish quite clearly the brain and the mind. Others will just blend them all together and say, well, it's just your mind. This is what your problem is. We understand there is brain issues and there are mind issues that are taking place in the mental health from there. And when you deal with depression, I want you to think about this. Depression has two different sources. I call them outward sources and inward sources. Outward sources is what a lot of people suffer with depression. That's circumstantial depression. You've had a death in the family. You've had a sudden loss. You've had a traumatic circumstance. Uh, you've, you've had a trial going through your life which has produced an unexpected response and issues and that, that pressure, the, those things that have happened have brought circumstances that have created moments of sadness, discouragement that can, can prolong a bit further and in doing so can bring in a cycle of depression. That can be worked out, not necessarily always with medication, it can be worked out with cognitive reasoning, with therapy. You may need some medication to help you calm down to sort of get back on track so you can work through it. But it's a circumstantial depression. It's something that has caused it. There are issues that have triggered it. Whereas there are other depressions that there is no seeming cause. Whether it is genetic or whether it is diet, whether it is some other issue, whether it is DNA, whatever it may have been, no one has a clue. But there's some have tried to discover some things, but it's clinical, it's chemical. There are things that take place. And here is the, here is the thing that can happen. You ever seen a green algae pool? How do you get it blue again or nice and clear? You shock it with chlorine. And all of a sudden, that whole muck all of a sudden gets cleared up. Well, what happens with the brain, with the thing, sometimes it needs to be shocked with different chemicals to help the serotonin levels, to help the dopamine levels, because they get all out of whack. Now, brain science is not an exact science. Uh, they can't sort of just cut your head open while you're alive and fiddle around inside of it. You know, they can't do that. Uh, they, they, this just doesn't happen. So they, they experiment pretty much, and they try to work out over thousands and thousands of cases, this seems to work with this person and help bring them back into this me measure of stability where they can start to think and work through different issues. And some will say, well, why should you do that? Well, let me ask you this question. If your body is not producing insulin naturally, and hence uh, 
You know, you can't break down your sugars naturally. We think nothing of it to go to the doctor and get a script so that we can chemically supply our body what it is not naturally making. We think nothing of that. If all of a sudden your hypertension isn't regulated properly and now your blood pressure is high and you're endangering your heart, you control it with medicine. But if your brain is not secreting the, the chemicals it needs to secrete to keep it balanced and fired because it's full of electricity and the transmitters aren't connecting, we tell people, you need to pray about this. And we say, no, no, yeah, pray about it for sure. Pray about everything. But don't just leave it as that. There may be some issues you need to be dealing with to help you through that. And but here is the thing. Either circumstantial or clinical or chemical issues, every one of them need to deal with the thought issues and the mind issues. And we cannot use any, any mental illness as an excuse for sin. Uh, you can't turn around and say, well, you know what? The Bible doesn't say this. The Bible doesn't say, well, thou shalt not commit murder unless you've got bipolar. It doesn't say that. Well, thou shalt not, thou shalt not steal unless you're in an anxious moment. It doesn't say that. It tells us that this is, the, this is the statement. If you have an issue in life, you need God's grace to help you through it and the Holy Spirit to help you, and he can. He can help you in those things. Now, we're privileged to jump into a moment with uh, one person in the Bible specifically, who went through a very, very bad depressive moment. And we get the chance through the scriptures to eavesdrop upon a conversation with this prophet and God, and that's the prophet Elijah. If you know the story, it's in 1 Kings chapter 19. I'll put scriptures up on the screen, but you can, if you want to turn to it, you can. And here are things, if, if Elijah can teach us something, he teaches us three things about depression. Uh, here is the first thing, and I call it the unquiet mind, because that's what he had. We all know Elijah was an incredible prophet. Uh, amazing things he did, miracles and uh, just standing up in Ahab's face and amazing things that Elijah did. But he also went to a bout of depression and we need to think about recognizing the triggers that can trigger depression in people's lives and trigger it in, in our lives and work through that. What had happened in his life, if you read the account, he has just killed and slain 400 Baal priests, false priests, false teachers. He's, he's wiped them out. He's had the showdown on Mount Carmel. When that happens, then all of a sudden, Jezebel gets wind of it, the queen, and says, I, you know what? What you did to my priests, I'm going to do to you. You're a dead man this time tomorrow, Elijah. Well, here's this great prophet, seemed to be scared of nothing, standing up there on the mount. Why halt you between two opinions and just bold and confident in God and gets a threat from a queen and next thing the Bible tells us, he went for his life. Takes off like a little scaredy cat, just zips off. What happened to this man? What, what was the change and what happened here? He gets to Beersheba and he was up in Jezreel. And if you've anyone ever been to Israel? You've been there, you know, you've seen that. So from Jezreel down to Beersheba, it's probably about a two-hour car drive. But walking it or running it, I mean, it's a, it's a fairly decent journey. And he shoots off and he gets to Beersheba. When he hits there... He then leaves his servant there and continues further and goes down into the Negev, down into the wilderness. And he went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And notice what he did. He requested for himself that he might die. I mean, we're serious here. This isn't just something you read past. This is a man saying, God, I want to die. And his statement was this, I've had enough. It's enough. It's enough now, O Lord. Take away my life. 
for I am not better than my father's. And you say, well, what, what happened to him? How did he get to this point? And maybe you've had moments where you've said, I've had enough. I can't deal with this anymore. You don't want to open another envelope. You don't want to answer another phone call. You, if someone knocks on the door, you won't even go to the door. You don't want to go to work. I've had enough. I can't take any more. And here he is in this moment. You say, what happened? His perspective was way off. And I'll give you quickly here five, five easy steps to depression. If you want to follow five easy steps to the, how to get depressed in five easy steps. You ready for them? Here's number one. Just get, just get fatigued. Wear yourself out. If you want to take the five easy steps to depression, number one is be absolutely fatigued. Here is Elijah, three years of intense physical, mental strain, spiritual strain, and he's just at an absolute physical wreck. And we have to understand, when your body is fatigued, your, your brain will be fatigued, your mind will then not be able to function correctly. Fatigue will affect your mental state. Here is this guy, and you know that if you've ever had anything, you guys have a great military presence around the world, you understand the idea of battle fatigue and what that does in people's mindsets, and you work through that. Uh, have you ever flipped out over something that really wasn't a big thing? Really because you're just tired? Uh, do, you, do Americans flip out? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, Aussies flip out as well, and we sort of you know, get the jack or something and just jump up and down and, and crack a nana. Uh, I'm not sure what you crack over here, but we crack a nana. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden you, you went to staples a document and there's no staples left in the stapler. And you scream out, there's no staples! Well, hang on, it's just a staple, mate. We'll get some staples for you. You try to make a cup of coffee and then you go to the cupboard and there's no sugar left and you lose it because there's no sugar. You say, what was the problem? Generally, you were just very tired. Tiredness does things to you. But not only that, he was someone who was fearful. That lady had threatened him and he had then let those threats become a fear and consume his thinking. Fear is a terrible thing. God said, I've not given you a spirit of fear, but I've given you power and love and a sound mind. And a fear will rob you of a sound mind. And it's consuming him and it's, it's plaguing him. It's a threat. You know, it's interesting about a threat. You can't see a threat, but it, you, it, it bothers you constantly. Maybe it's a looming threat I could lose my job. It's a looming threat that there is potential health issue, a relationship threat, a bankruptcy threat. It hasn't happened, but the threat is there. You, know, you had a parent who died when they were 52 of an unusual disease. You're 51, and this threat of, I wonder if I'm going to be the same. And these bother you, and they wear you out mentally and tire you. He then fled. He shut his friend out. He said, you know what, I'm leaving you here, and he isolated himself. If you want to move on the cycle of depression, isolate yourself when you're in a down moment. Push people away, I'm not going to let you in, I'm not going to tell you what I'm going through, I'm going to wall up from there, and then you'll start to lose focus. You'll start to think on the negative. Uh, my wife would do this, especially in her depressed moments, and there came times where we just basically pulled the Bible away. Because when she would read the Bible, she would just find everything negative in her depressed state. So we pulled it away and I end up, we end up coming in her good state. We'd sit down and write out some really great positive scriptures. And so we knew, okay, listen, if you want to read something, grab out your scripture sheet because that's going to be some positive, good word that you need to get into you. You don't need to be working out the toes on the Antichrist right now. That's not the issue. We don't need to be working out this is how it happened to these people and what's going to happen here. 
Let's forget about that right now. Let's move on to something good and positive that's going to help you because focus gets off. My wife said, it's not that you don't see the light in the end of the tunnel, you just don't see the tunnel. You just lose focus on things. I think it's interesting, he was saying, he's got himself worked up and he said, you know, I'm not better than my father's. This is what he was thinking. It was what amazing, no one was asking him if he was. He was tormenting his own mind. And we do that, we torment ourselves with our own thoughts and, and, and never becomes a, a word. Self-pity and exaggeration happens. You know, I'm never going to get better. I'm never going to get this. Uh, Pastor Josh Tice took me to the Outback Steakhouse, thought it would be a good place to take an Aussie. And so uh, he takes me to the Outback Steakhouse and I said, you know, after eating at the Outback Steakhouse, I'm never going to fit into these pants tomorrow. I mean, you start to think, I'm never going to get into this thing. I'm never going to get into this stuff. It's a negative thought pattern working through and then the last thing he did he forgot what did he forget he absolutely forgot the faithfulness of God Elijah do you not remember that I fed you with ravens I mean it wasn't KFC it was Raven FC I mean it dropped in by the sky here it is I mean I'm not sure if I'd like to eat food coming from a raven's mouth but I mean you're desperate you're gonna eat it aren't you but he got this is provision of God have have you not remembered the fire from heaven around the water and everything you're not and he forgot the faithfulness of God. The moment you block God out and his faithfulness, you're going to be continuing on this cycle that there is no hope. That's why in the scriptures you'll find there are over and over this one word that says, remember. Remember the goodness of the Lord. Remember the greatness of God. Remember these things to call back to your remembrance, these issues. In the Hebrew language, the word remember is zakah. And it brings more than the Greek idea of just remembering and recalling. It says, remember with action. When you remember it, put it into now, I've got to practice this. I've got to bring it back into this. And God's saying, I want you to remember this. And that's why he says that. Because we have so bad memories. We just remember the bad stuff and recall it. And here is the thing. You say, well, okay, there were the triggers. What happened then? You've got to reach out for treatment. You have to reach out for treatment. Elijah teaches us this. And here is what you remember. In this passage... God sends an ambassador, sends an angel, a representative, turns up to him. And I love what you find in this passage of scripture because here's what you're going to find the angel does not do when he is in a a suicidal moment, a depressed state. Here is what the angel from God does not do. No sermon, no lecture, no shame, no guilt, no rebuke, none of that. It's not, Elijah, you should have memorized more verses, Elijah. Oh, Elijah, why did you miss church on Wednesday, Elijah? It was none of that. Here is what he said, Elijah, you need some physical treatment. You're exhausted. Your body is run down. So the, the passage teaches us that he went and he said, get up and eat. You're asleep. And often people who are depressed will sleep a lot. It just seems to just, my wife can sleep. I can't understand how much she can sleep when she's in a depressed state. I've tried it one day and I just can't do it. She'll sleep without 18 hours, no problem at all. And still wake up and still feel very tired. Day after day. And I think, how do you do this? I can't, you know, I just can't do it. But in her depressed state, that's where she's at. And, but she, he needed food, he needed rest. He needed something to strengthen him. He needed some physical treatment. For some people, that they simply may need rest. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is rest. That's sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do. 
He needed food. Some people need vitamins. Some people need medicine. Some people need exercise. Some people need different aspects of physical things to help their physical body. But then not only that, he needed some mental treatment. He needed mental treatment in this way. The angel comes to him and, and sometimes you need someone to speak into your life to help your mental thought process because you're thinking wrong. You need to realign some thoughts in your life. The angel turns up, touches him again and says, listen, the journey is too great for you. You've got this out of whack, Elijah. You've, take, you've tried to take on too much for yourself. You've got to pace yourself. The way you're dealing with life is not going to be successful for you. You're going to end up in this state again. So you need to pace yourself. Sometimes we need someone to speak that into our lives. A counsellor, a therapist, someone along those lines. I remember when I was a, a young teenager, I used to sprint. I obviously don't sprint now. And... Um, I, can, I used to be able to run the 100 metres in 12 seconds, now I can run 12 metres in 100 seconds, but uh, you know, the whole idea was I was a sprinter and then one day I decided to join the cross country and to do the 5,000 metre race. Well, I took off on that 5,000 metre race like a sprinter. I'm miles ahead from the crowd. I'm looking back at these losers thinking, look at these guys, I'm going to flog them. Well, it didn't really happen because it wasn't too far into the race and something was happening to my legs I hadn't felt before. <laughs> something that happened to my heart was palpitating and I think, what, what is this? I need a paramedic quickly. And everyone passed me. And then the coach pulled us aside and said, Robert, what were you doing? I'll tell you what happened. You entered a long distant race with a short distant mindset. And that's what sometimes happens. We need someone to teach, you're thinking this way, you need it corrected. Some mental treatment is happening, but you also need a spiritual treatment. In verse 8, God's going to tell him, you need to go in the strength of that meat that I've given you. As, you, as, the, meat has, as the food has strengthened your body, so are these words to strengthen your soul. And I want you to go unto Horeb, the mount of God. You need to get with God. Elijah, you need to be alone with me. You need to spend some time with me. And when we deal with people with mental illness, we tell them, you're going to need physical, mental and spiritual treatments, a holistic approach. If you just try to deal with one, you say, well, I'm just going to try to deal with this spiritually. Well, good luck to you. I'm going to just deal with this physically. Well, good luck to you. Oh, I'm going to deal with just mentally. Well, good luck to you. You try to work it out. We found the great way to deal with this is a holistic approach, physical, mental, and spiritual treatment to help people from that. And so when we wrote our book on Poles Apart, we wrote one chapter specifically on 25 practical reasons or 25 things that you can do. 16 of the practical solutions are available to anyone, Christian or non-Christian. But there is, there, there, there is a nine that are exclusive for a Christian. And so we tell people, just think about this. There are things that God can do for you. And let me give you this last thing very quickly. We have to replace the lies with truth. And I want to show you what happened to Elijah. Elijah gets to the cave and God says, what are you doing here? What's happening, mate? Tell me what's going on in your life. Verbalize what you're thinking. And I want you to notice what he verbalized. Answer me, true or false? Elijah said to God, I've been very jealous of the Lord God of hosts. True or false? That was true. He then goes on and says this, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant. True or false? false? That was true. He then goes on and says this, they've thrown down thine altars. Was that true? It was true. He then said this, I've slain the prophets with the sword. That was true. Everything he's thinking was true until he hit this statement. I'm the only one doing anything. It's only me. Everything's on me. And God said, no, that's false. That's not true. He was believing a lie. And when you start to believe lies, it's going to mess you up. He then comes back and he has to correct his thinking and say, there's 7,000 others, Elijah, that haven't bowed the knee. 
there are 7,000 others. And I sometimes wonder the lies that we believe that need to be replaced with truth. My wife was told, you're going to be crazy the rest of your life. And I was told, leave her. You know, you're a young man. You've got three kids. Go and find another wife. Get rid of her. Imagine if we believed those lies. We, we said, no, there's, there's got to be truth. We've got to follow truth from here. This, her illness is just an illness. It's not who she is. And we understand that your illness is not your identity. Your chemistry is not your character. Who you are is who you are in Christ. That's the truth. And so we build our lives around that. And so when I ask people this question, where are you right now? Where are you in your life? If God asked Elijah, what are you doing here? And he asked us, some would say, well, I'm just in this state. This is how I'm going to be. I'm going to be depressed. That may not necessarily be true. You've got to examine what you're believing and line it up with the word and get the good word to make sure you're not believing a lie from there. And sometimes God will take in that lowest moment and speak to you the softest, like he did to Elijah with a still small voice. And sometimes it's a word, a phrase. I'll not leave you. I love you. I'm enough for you. And little phrases that can just be a good word to strengthen you and give you hope. Elijah ended up through his depression moment and what he went through and God brought him through it, he put him into a whole new purpose of anointing kings and prophets. My wife and I look at what's happened to our lives and her life in particular and see that God has put us into a great purpose. We look at it as a gift, not, not a problem. We say, God, you've given us opportunity to reach people we've never reached before and be able to reach out to different things. And I think if we're going to reach anyone, we have to remember the church ought to be the safest place on planet Earth to discuss any of these things, to talk about this, bring it up to a topic. And I'll tell you how every one of us can help remove this stigma. We remember this, every one of us are broken. We're all broken somewhere. Some people's brains might be broken, some people's hearts might be broken, but we're all broken in different areas. And we just remember those things. My wife has this phrase, we say this, my brokenness is a far better bridge to people than my pretend wholeness ever was. She's been able to reach so many more people, just being open about this is who I am. This is with the illness I have, but I'm in Christ. And God has helped us through these different things. When I was uh, early in our early marriage period when all this was happening, I got so angry and upset and would blame her and say, you're ruining our family, you're ruining these things. And, and I read a passage of scripture that said, husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. And the Holy Spirit used that like a sledgehammer and just drove it into my heart. And I realized I was just a selfish, arrogant, self-righteous man. And I had to confess it and repent of that as sin and realize this is my wife. And God broke me at that moment there and, and changed everything in our whole marriage, changed everything that went from there. And I think my wife is my absolute hero because a hero is someone who succeeds while struggling with the same problems that people use as excuses for failure. And she just pressed on from there. And she just said, this is what God has got us doing. Let's just press on, ups, downs, whatever it is, we're going on for God. And here's what happens. Sometimes fear can stop you, can't it? And I remember what happened back there, Jezebel and Elijah. Jezebel from the very beginning said, I'm going to kill you, Elijah. Anyone know how Elijah died? Because he was so afraid he was going to die. He didn't die. And you know what happened? He never experienced his greatest fear. And sometimes people live with these fears their whole life and never even experience them. But it it's just shackles them and closes them down. But what we do know is this. We know that whatever isn't healed on earth will be healed in heaven because we have a wounded healer and his name is Jesus. hope that's been a help to you talking about this idea of mental illness and uh, mental health and appreciate if you pray for us, if you think of us, as we continue to try to help people 
understand it and then help people with these different problems. Thank you, Pastor. Again, thank you for checking us out online. If you have never been to one of our services, it would be such an honor to have you as one of our guests. If you have made any decision today, our staff would love to celebrate with you. Would you please email us at info at oasislv.church.